And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. But not, do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask that you will help us by your Spirit. We ask that your Son will be in our midst via his Spirit, that you will be with preacher and be with those who are hearing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In a recent article, a Relevant Magazine named the five prayers that have changed the world. Let me just give you four, and the fifth one's probably going to shock you at its ranking. Number one, the number one prayer that has changed the world is St. Patrick's uh, Christ Before Me prayer. St. Patrick's Christ Before... Raise your hand if you've ever heard of that prayer. Yeah. Um, It's supposed to change the world, (laughs) but none of us have ever heard of it. Uh, St. Patrick's famous prayer of Christ within me sums up the desire of a follower of Jesus, to know Jesus, to be known by Jesus, and be completely and utterly surrounded by his love. To know that love and to feel that peace is something St. Patrick longed for. Number two, the number two uh, prayer that has changed the world is William Tyndale's prayer for the King of England. In this prayer, Tyndale passionately challenged the church's reluctance to provide English-language copies of the Bible, and the establishment evidently grew weary and sent him to death. Number three, Martin Luther King Jr.'s prayer for the church. Martin Luther King Jr. prayed for the church is a cry for equality, a cry for unity, and a cry for discipleship. Number four, Mother Teresa's Do It Anyway prayer. This prayer encapsulates in a few lines the heart of Mother Teresa. Uh, do as others as you would do, uh, as you would with them do to you. Uh, treat them well, love them regardless of how they treat you. And the number five, before. The one after Mother Teresa, Dr. King, William Tyndale, St. Patrick, the number five prayer that has changed the world is Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. (laughs) These prayers, I'm sure, uh, I have not read all of them, are unique and special in their own right, but a list of the greatest prayers that have changed the world 
is incomplete without mentioning the prayer that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 6. And is there where we find the Lord's Prayer. It was uh, Tertullian who said the Lord's Prayer is truly the summary of the whole gospel. It was a Thomas Aquinas who says that among all prayers, the Lord's Prayer stands preeminent. The Lord's Prayer is the most perfect of prayers. In it we ask not only for all the things we can rightly desire, but also in the sequence that they should be desired. This prayer not only teaches us to ask for things, but also in what order we should desire them. It was Martin Luther who said the Lord's Prayer is the finest prayer that has ever been sent from heaven. And lastly, the great Puritan Thomas Watson refers to the Lord's Prayer as the prayer of prayers. When we think of the Lord's Prayer, saints, what do we usually think of? Well, if you grew up uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, you know of the Lord's Prayer all too well. In fact, many of you can recite the Lord's Prayer by heart. And one of the problems that we find when people speak of the Lord's Prayer is they think that the Lord's Prayer has some sort of power to it. That when you say the Lord's Prayer a certain amount of times, then something might happen. But rather, what we see the Lord doing as he gives to his disciples the Lord's Prayer is he's modeling for us how one is to approach prayer. The things we are to say in prayer and the sequence, the order in which we are to say them. You see, the Lord's Prayer is similar to the Ten Commandments. You see, in the Ten Commandments, the first commandments speak of our relationship to God and then our relationship to our neighbor. Well, in the Lord's Prayer, it speaks of how we are to approach God and then how we are to approach God about the things of ourselves. To give us the context of the prelude to the Lord's Prayer, we see that Christ has been talking to his disciples of what prayer is to look like. Don't be like the hypocrites, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees who, who go to the, to, the, to the marketplace, they go to the corner, and they have these loud prayers. They don't really want to pray, but they want everyone to see them praying. He says, don't be like them. Don't show off in your prayer, but rather go to a secret place and pray to your father. He then says, don't be like the Gentiles who say many words. He calls them empty phrases. And what they were doing is they thought that by saying these words repeatedly, then something magical will happen. You might have heard this before. You might have even did it before. The sinner's prayer, which is so common in church now. I say this prayer, and then I'm saved. Or if I do this prayer, then I'm good. That's what Jesus says. That's what the Gentiles do, as if there's something magical within that prayer. But rather, prayer is to be from the heart, to know who God is, 
and who we are in our relationship to God. Then he says, when you pray, pray like this. Out of all the things that Christ has left us, isn't it wonderful that he's left us a model of how to pray? The one thing that Christians don't do as much as they should do, the one thing that Christians don't have time to do, Jesus says, let me give you a model of how you are to do it. So let's consider the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to consider the Lord's Prayer for uh, many months, because uh, in the evening, we're going to be doing a a prayer service, as you know, and um, Pastor Antonio and I thought that it was fitting uh, that when we do these prayer services in the evening, we talk about prayer, and let's do the Lord's Prayer. Uh, So we'll be doing the Lord's Prayer for uh, a few months, because we're only going to be doing it once a month. (laughs) So let's consider the Lord's Prayer. And this morning, I want to consider just the first two words of the Lord's Prayer. The first two words of the Lord's Prayer. This point is called the fatherhood of God. The fatherhood of God. Saints, if we were to do a poll of how Christians begin their prayers, I think the dominant way that Christians begin their prayers would be They address the Father first. And this is done in many ways, whether it be uh, dear Father or Holy Father or the common uh, Father God. That's usually how one uh, addresses uh, the first person or addresses uh, in their prayers. And this way of beginning prayer is not a bad way. It's not bad to address the Father first, for this is how Jesus Christ tells us how we are to begin our prayers. Consider with me verse 9. Jesus says, then pray like this. Our Father in heaven. Now next month we'll, we'll consider the heaven and the hallowed be your name part, but he says, our Father. Jesus tells the disciples that prayer is to begin with the Father. And it's interesting, isn't it? And those who were in the Sunday school class, this is where uh, you will find much help. It's interesting that when Jesus says that we are to begin our prayers, he says that we are to begin our prayers not by addressing the Son or the Spirit, but rather the Father. Now, what's the reason for this? Why does Jesus say, address the Father rather than addressing the Son or the Spirit? Now, one might think that, well, it's simply because the Father is greater than the Son or the Spirit. That the Father is more God than the Son and the Spirit. Thereby, we pray to the Father first, rather than the Son or the Spirit. Well, friends, we can't say that. It's actually heretical to say that. The Father is not more God than the Son or the Spirit, because the Bible teaches us that the Son and the Spirit are co-equal in power and authority with the Father. The Father is not greater than the Son or the Spirit because they all share what it means to be God. Just as you are not more human than I am, and you're not less human than I am. The Father is not more God than the Son, and the Son is not less God than the Father. 
but they are equal in power and authority. So as the Son and the Spirit are co-equal in power and authority with the Father, if they're not less than God than the Father, if they're not more God than the Father, if the Father is not greater than the Son or the Spirit, then why don't we begin our prayers addressing the Son or the Spirit rather than the Father? Why don't we say our Son who is in heaven or our Spirit who is in heaven, but rather our Father who is in heaven? Well, the reason is simply this. We address the Father first because it is the Father who is first in the inner life of the Trinity. We address the Father first because it is the Father who is first in the inner life of the Trinity. The Trinity is simply there is one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father nor the Son. They are distinct in their personality. Now, what makes the Father not the Son? And what makes the Son not the Spirit? And what makes the Spirit not the Father nor the Son? Well, it's simply this ordering within the Trinity. The Father is first, the Son is second, and the Spirit is third. The Father is first because he comes from no one. He has what is called the personal property of what it means to be begotten, unbegotten. The Son is second because he's eternally from the Father. And the Spirit is third because he comes from the Father through the Son. And this ordering within the inner life of the Trinity is seen in salvation. I mean, we, we say it all the time. We sing of it. Father, thank you for sending your Son. We pray to the Father through your Son in the Spirit. So practically, we know these things. We do them all the time. Who is the one that is sent to assume our flesh, to live, die, and rise for us? Who is sent? Is it the Father, Son, or the Spirit? It's the Son that is sent. Who sends the Son? The Father sends the Son. Why does the Father send the Son? Because the Father is first. The Son is second. And the Spirit is third. Mind you, not first in rank. Not first in hierarchy. But merely first in the relation to the other. Father's first. The Son is second. The Spirit is third. And in time, the Son sent, or the Son is sent by the Father because the Son is eternally from the Father. In time, the Son is sent by the Father because outside of time, He's eternally from the Father. The Son finds His timeless beginnings from the Father, just as all things find its origins from the Father. Therefore, when we pray, it's most fitting that we pray to the Father and address God as Father rather than the Son or the Spirit because it is the Father who is the origin of all of life. Now we have to note that when we pray to the Father, it's not an exclusion to the Son or the Spirit. When we pray to the Father, it's not an exclusion to the Son or the Spirit. 
But we are praying to the Father, but also to the Son and the Spirit. Now, why is the Father called Father? Don't know, maybe you've maybe pondered that question before. Why do we call Father the Father? Now, let me tell you one and get out the way. The Father is not Father because he's a male. The Father is not Father because he's a male. He's a spirit. The Father doesn't have male body parts. He has no body. So why do we call Father Father? Well, long story short, we call Father Father because that is how he's revealed himself in the Word. He's revealed himself as Father. Now, what does it mean for him to be Father? What does it mean for the Father to be Father? And Scripture gives us two ways in which the Father is called Father. We're just going to sit down on these two ways. Two ways in which the Father is Father. First, the Father is Father naturally. And secondly, the Father is Father spiritually. The Father is Father naturally. And secondly, the Father is Father spiritually. There is a natural element to him being Father, and there's a spiritual element to him being father. Let's consider the first, how the father is father naturally. In the Bible, God is not identified as such words as maker or framer, uh, but rather he's simply called father. And as Athanasius notes, the word father is indicative of the son, which means one implies the other. If he's a father, then he must have a son. And that's what we read in the New Testament. When we read of Christ being referred to as God's begotten Son. And when we read of God being, or Jesus being, the begotten Son, then that implies that he has a Father. Many times, Jesus refers to his Father, or him being God's Son. And when Christ says he's God's Son, he's not speaking of himself being God's Son in the same way that you and I are children of God. That's important to note. That you and I are children of God in a very different way than the Son is a child of God. When Christ says that he's a son of God, he's not speaking in the same way that Israel was a corporate son of God or that Adam was a son of God. Being God's son is not a title that Jesus has. Nor is it something that he becomes at a certain part in his ministry. Many will say at his baptism, he becomes the son of God. But Jesus is the father's natural son. Jesus is the father's natural son. So what do I mean when I say Jesus is the father's natural son? We read in John 3.16, in John chapter 1, in 1 John, that the son is begotten of the father. We read in Proverbs 8, from everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest of times of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. There's a, brink, there's a coming forth from the sun, 
or to the, uh, from the Son to the Father, and also there is a begottenness that's going on in Scripture. And friends, when we say that the Son is begotten of the Father, we might think that the Son was created by the Father. That's what it means to be begotten from one, right? It means that you create and then they come forth. But saints, we aren't to make a one-to-one connection between the way human sons are begotten from their human fathers and the way the son is begotten from his father. The son of God is not created nor made. He is not begotten or brought forth after the manner of men. The same way that I begat my son Owen is not the same way the father begets Jesus Christ. So what does the Bible mean when it says that the Son is begotten of the Father? Well, number one, it means that He's eternal. Since the Father is eternal, then whoever He begets must be eternal as well. Just as us. We finite humans only beget finite humans. Therefore, if God was to have a Son, His Son has to be God as well. But what does it mean also when it says that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father? Now, for the sake of simplicity uh, and for the sake of clarity, it simply means this. When the Bible says the Son is begotten of the Father, it means that the Son shares in the same nature as the Father. What was the biggest heresy that almost took over the church? It is that the Son is not God. That's what Arius would say, that there once was a time when the Son was not, that he is not co-equal in power and authority with God the Father. And that almost took over the church and destroyed the church. But the Bible is clearer that the Son is of the same nature with the Father. Just as You are of the same nature as I am. You're not more human than me, and you're not less human than me. The Son is not less God than the Father, but He's equal with the Father. It means that since the Father is eternal, then His Son is eternal as well. There never was a time when the Father was not a Father, He didn't become a Father, He's eternal Father. And there never was a time when the Son was not the Son of the Father. He's eternally been the Son. It means that the Son depends on the Father in order to be the Son, but also it means that the Father depends on the Son in order to be Father. You can't have one without the other. It means, that the son of, is, uh, it means that the Son is God because he comes forth from one who is God. Just as your child, the one that, you, that comes forth from you, you don't produce animals and you don't produce aliens, you produce humans. And the one that comes forth from the Father is his Son who is God. And saints, this truth tells us Uh, That when we think of the Father, that we must not separate him from his Son. We must not separate the Father from the Son. As the great Athanasius has said, 
The father is not separated from the son, for the name carries the relationship with it. And friends, I think that that quote best summarizes this subpoint that the father is not father by name only. The father is not father because he gave himself that title. But there is a real reason ontologically why the father is father. Amen. And the father is father because he has a son. And his son is Jesus Christ. So why is the father father? Because he is the father of Jesus Christ. He is the natural father of Jesus Christ. Let's consider the second subpoint, and that is the father is father spiritually. We've considered the father as father naturally. Now let's consider the father as father spiritually. Along with the father being uh, the natural father of the son, we see in Scripture that the Father is our spiritual Father. The old theologians would say, what the Son is by nature is what we are by grace. Athanasius would say that God became man so that we may become God. The Blessed John tells us uh, in uh, 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called sons of God. Paul says in Galatians 3, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And John says in John 1.12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them right to become children of God. The overarching theme of a person who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ is that they have been adopted as the Father's children. If you are in Christ, then you have been adopted as God's Son. And this, saints, is what makes the gospel the sweetest news, right? It's not that Jesus came to save us and bring us to heaven, but he saves us to bring us in union with himself so that we may have a relationship with the Father in the same way that mirrors the relationship that he has with the Father. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, we were separated from Christ. He tells us in Colossians 1 that we were alienated from God. The Bible is crystal clear that those who are not saved in Christ are separated from Christ. For those who don't worship the one true God are separated from the one true God. But the sweet news of the gospel is that in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, he reconciles us to God by joining us into himself. No text brings us out more than Ephesians 2.19. Therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens of the saints and members of God's household. You're You're no longer not welcome to the cookout or to the Sunday dinner. But the house is yours. You have a room there. 
By grace, we have been adopted as God's children. Now, when we think of that statement, when we think of the doctrine of adoption, right, many things have been written and said about that doctrine of being adopted as God's sons and daughters. We might think of adoption in the same way that children are adopted by their parents, meaning it's merely a legal transaction. See, when a child is adopted from their parents, what happens? They receive all of the benefits of what it means to be a child of that parent, not naturally, because they don't have the last name, but legally. Legally, all of the rights are yours. And although that metaphor is present in Scripture, I don't believe that that is at the heart of what the Bible means when it speaks of us being adopted as children. Yes, we are adopted legally. But when God adopts us, it's not merely a legal transaction, but rather the sonship in which we're being adopted into is Christ's sonship in his humanity. Let's break this down. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are legally declared innocent and receive the benefits of Jesus Christ. We are legally declared a son of God. That's what justification is. It's a forensic declaration. It's where God bangs the gavel and says, you have been declared innocent, and you have a righteousness that's not of your own. Justification deals with our legal status as sons. But that's not also how the Bible speaks of our sonship. Because in sanctification, hear this now, in sanctification, our legal sonship transforms into an actual sonship. In justification, you are legally a son. But in sanctification, this process in which the Holy Spirit is detaching you from all of your sinful inclinations, when the Holy Spirit is making you more like Jesus Christ, what's happening there? He is moving you from a legal son to an actual son. In the process of sanctification, the Spirit moves us from legal to natural sons of God. Ephesians 1, chapter 3, verse 5 speaks this clear. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Let me stop there. God chooses us in Christ that we be holy and blameless before him. That's not speaking of justification. Because raise your hand if you're holy and blameless right now. No. That's speaking of sanctification. That we should be holy and blameless. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So what's at the heart of adoption according to Paul? It's adoption to God the Father as sons of God in the Son, Jesus Christ. So when the Father looks at you, He doesn't see the eternal son and Anthony, the Christian, the other son. But he sees one son. When he sees you, he sees Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, we are not merely legal sons, 
But the Spirit is moving us in sanctification to become actual and really sons of God by grace. Paul says in Romans 8, 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, hear this, to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that we might be the firstborn, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. What is this process that you're going through right now as a Christian? To be conformed to the image of the Son, so that you will mirror the Son. So when the Father again looks at you, he sees his Son. That's what that means. But also, Paul says, so that Christ may be the firstborn among many brethren. God is not content with only having one son. But a multitude of sons that gather up in the one son. We speak of this all the time. We are in Christ. We are united to Christ. What does that mean? It means that we participate in Christ's humanity. That we are united to him in such a way that he is in me and I am in him. That there is no difference between me and him. One theologian notes, the, the Spirit seals the relationship in which we stand to the Father. Hear this. Not only alongside the only begotten Son, but in him as one Christ. Meaning Jesus is not right here and then we're right here. But we are in Christ. The same son that Christ is in his humanity are the same sons that we are because we are united to his humanity. You see, in Jesus Christ, you don't have that he's a natural son according to his divinity and he's an adopted son according to his humanity. But rather, in his humanity, he's been elevated to such a place well, for what it means for the natural son to be son, he is the son. There's not two sons in Jesus Christ, but there is one son. And in his humanity, we participate in his sonship. By the Spirit, we are given grace to participate in the natural sonship of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that natural sonship consist of? I've said it earlier. It means that when the Father looks at you, he sees his Son, but also it means this, saints, that because you are united to Jesus Christ, the Son, it means that you have been invited, that you participate in the most loving relationship that the world has ever known, and that is the love between the Father and his Son. You share in that mutual love relationship because you are in the Son. And because you are in the Son, the Father loves you just as much as He loves His Son. That's what that means. So when we think of salvation, yes, we've been declared innocent. We've been given to us heaven, the beatific vision, all these things, but we now participate in this Father-Son relationship because we are in the Son. So don't ever think that the Father doesn't love you. 
the Father loves you because you are united to his Son. More than a husband is united to his wife, more than a baby is united to his or her mother in the womb. But in such a real way that I am in Christ and he is in me, we participate in the natural sonship of Jesus Christ. You see, friends, we're not legally just sons. But the Spirit is moving us to be natural sons. And one day, at the consummation of all things, it will all be completed when we will be natural sons of Jesus Christ. In this participation, what benefits do we have, which leads to some practical uses? What are the benefits of addressing God as Father? What benefits do we have of addressing God as Father? The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8.15, For you not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons which we cry out, Abba, Father. Archie Sproul makes a wonderful insight. He says, A German scholar who was doing research in the New Testament literature discovered that in the entire history of Judaism, in all the existing books of the Old Testament, in all existing books of extra-biblical Jewish writings dating from the beginning of Judaism until the 10th century AD in Italy, he notes that there is not a single reference of a Jewish person addressing God directly in the first person as father. The Jews never address God as Father. There were appropriate forms of address that were used by Jewish people in the Old Testament, and the children were trained to address God in proper phrases of respect. All these titles were memorized, and the term Father was not one of them. You see, the Jews worshipped God and prayed to God who is one. But the Jews didn't know God as Father. We know God as Father. But note, saints, he's not just a Father. But what does Jesus say in our text? He's our Father. He's our Father. Not just some generic Father. But he's our, mine. And this suggests many things when we pray. First, it's important to know that, uh, not only know that God exists, but it's equally as important to address God the right way. You believe that Jesus is, is the Christ. You believe that God is one, but you must address God in the right manner. In many churches today, words like theology and doctrine Hypostatic union, the Trinity, are equivalent to curse words. Christians don't like theology and doctrine in the modern day church. Many of you might not be fond of theology and doctrine because you might think it's only for smart folks. Or you might think that there's no practicality to doctrine or theology. I can't take it and apply it. But saints, here we see in the Lord's Prayer that our theology 
informs how we pray. That's what theology does. Doctrine and theology orders us to right and holy living. Doctrine informs how we are to live. We all know that we are to obey God. How do we obey God then? The Bible tells us. Our theology tells us. In fact, me and Ray met a man yesterday who said, um, what did he say? Oh, yeah, so we met a guy yesterday, and he said, I don't believe in hell. I believe that God will not send people to hell. What has that man done there, saints? His idea of God has now made him believe dogmatically that God will not send people to hell off of who he wants God to be. Friends, I don't want to worship a God who's after the likeness of my own image and my own imagination. But we want to worship a God who is far bigger and greater than our imagination. And this is what theology does. And what Christ teaches us in Lord's Prayer is addressing God in the right manner matters. We address him as our Father. Theology matters. The second thing that calling God our Father suggests, and hear me now, is a simple, a very simple, but it's yet the most profound of truth. And it's a reality. And that is we have a Heavenly Father. That's what... Ultimately, this, this practically, this, this tells us that, that we have a heavenly Father. I don't know if you've ever considered just that in itself, that God is your Father. God is your Father. There are many of you who have been blessed with great earthly fathers who you think are the bee's knees, you think the world of, and that's great. There are some of you that might not even know who your earthly father was. There are some of you whose father is still living. There are some of you whose father has gone away and passed away. No matter which one speaks to your situation, just know that in Jesus Christ, you have a father. Whether living, dying, whether good father, bad father, in Christ, you have a father. I love what Jonathan Edwards wrote to his daughter while he was on his deathbed. He said, quote, As to my children, you are now to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you all to seek a father who will never fail you. As great as you think your father was, he pales a comparison to our father in heaven. No earthly father holds a candle to who our father is. No matter your bad experiences of your father and the relationship that you had with your father, don't bring that baggage into your relationship with your heavenly father. Our heavenly father is the best of fathers, is he not? Is he not a most loving father? He says in Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. 
And I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Is he not a most caring father? Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Is he not a most faithful father? 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Is he not a most protective father? 2 Thessalonians 3.3, but the Lord is faithful. And he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Is he not a most merciful father? Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Which father compares to that? But only our father who is in heaven. Saints, this is the father whom we pray to. And this is the type of confidence that we should have in prayer when we approach our Father, that He's most loving, most caring. He hears us. Wouldn't it be great if you sent a letter to the President of the United States and then He actually writes you back? Remember, we used to do that all the time, right? When you would write pen pals to people and they actually write you back. How does that make you feel? It means that you're actually being heard. That someone's giving you the time of day. Well, how much more should we think of it in prayer when the Father hears us 24 access to God's throne room and we are his children and he hears our cries. He understands our afflictions. He knows of our pains. The Heidelberg Catechism, uh, Lord's Day 46 says, uh, question, why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? Answer, to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence and trust toward God which should be basic to our prayer. Why should we address God as Father? To awaken at the very beginning of our prayer a childlike reverence that we are his children, we are coming to him, as John Calvin says, we are climbing upon our Father's lap, and we are lisping all of our worries, all of our desires into his ear. And this should be most basic to our prayer. It's an understanding of who we are and who God is. And the last thing that calling God our Father suggests is prayer is about not merely us, But prayer is about a family. That when we pray, prayer is not merely about me, the individual, but prayer is about us, a family. When we say God is our Father, it's not just my Father, but also all the other ones that the Father has sent His Son to live, die, and rise for. So when you pray and you say, Our Father, It's not just your father, but it's your neighbor's father who is saved in Christ. It should remind you that, hey, wait a minute, I shouldn't be praying only about my things, but also of the needs of others. It reminds us quickly that we are a family of God. And friends, this evening I welcome you to prayer service in which we corporately will come to the throne room of our Father 
and lay down all of our petitions, all of our desires, all of our wants. And knowing that the one who stands next to me, he hears my prayer. He understands my cries. It's building a family that our Father suggests. That we're not just lone rangers in this Christian walk, but as Pastor Antonio has said a few months back in his sermon, that we are, we are in this race holding hands together. None of us desiring to be first, and none of us wanting others to be last. But we are all running this race hand by hand. So saints, this evening, come back so we can hold hands together and all in one accord pray to our Father who is in heaven. And because we are his sons legally, but also the Spirit is progressing us to be natural sons of him, he will hear our prayers. Let's pray.